church family and all those who are tuning in this morning on our worship service. My name is Brandon Ziski, the lead pastor at Austin Oaks Church. We are honored and humbled again that you're allowing us into your lives. A little bit about us, if you don't know who we are and what we're about, we're a church that strives to be simply all about Jesus. Now, real quick, I just want to reiterate what you're going to hear or have heard in our announcements is that on September 13th, here on our campus, we're going to be celebrating changed lives. We're going to be celebrating baptism. So if you are one of those who have given your life to the Lord within the last five, six months or so, and I would encourage you to consider being baptized. It is a very important thing that we do as believers. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Reach out to us. Or even if you were baptized as a baby and maybe at a time in your life when the decision didn't really make sense, but now you're at a spot where you're like, you know what? I'm going to do this because I want to do this because it is a decision that I made due to the grace of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you again, reach out to us. Let us know so that way we can get you what you need to do and talk to you a little bit about what it looks like to be baptized and all that kind of stuff because we want to celebrate what God has done and is doing in the lives of those who say yes to Him. Okay, so before we get into the message this morning, I need to confess something. I need to confess a problem that I have in my life, a problem that has lingered um, for a long time. And this problem has caused negative effects in my life. And no matter what I do or how I go about it, I just can't seem to shake this off. It has even have started to cause um, disruption in, in my marriage to my beautiful wife, Carissa. I mean, I, I, like, listen, I have the best intentions like I really want to deal with it and I don't want to be a victim of it. But no matter how hard I try, no matter how good my intentions are, it still gets me. Hi, my name is Brandon Ziski, and I'm a snoozaholic. I know many of you are snoozers. And now listen, listen, listen to those of you out there right now, out there, wherever you're at at home or, you know, whatever. If you're the type that can just tell yourself at night what time you're going to wake up and you wake up early before the sun rises and you've already ran 30 miles and wrote a book, listen, don't judge me, okay? I really am envious of you, okay? I struggle with snooze and I keep thinking about it. It's like, what is so attractive and so appealing about snooze that it, it just has absolute control over us in the morning? For me, I wake up, I know it's time, my brain says you gotta get up, but for some reason, I can't snap it, and my hand just happens to reach and hit the snooze button, and there's something magical, or at least deceptively magical, about those eight or nine extra minutes of sleep. Yep, the first thing I need after six to eight hours of sleeping is a nap. That's what I decide to do every single day morning and my wife gets extremely frustrated with that you know especially times when i'm like committed i'm going to change things and i'm going to get up early i'm going to be productive i'm going to spend extra time with the lord and and i'll tell her that the night before and she goes really realistically what time are you going to get up and i'm like no no i'm going to get up at 5 30. you know some of you're like 5 30 that's not early trust me that's early okay and it just doesn't happen and we all know listen we all know that snoozing is absolutely worthless Right, all we we know that is just a delay to the day. We know it really disorients our body. We feel rushed and all of a sudden stress and anxiousness kind of creeps in. And for a good portion of our morning, we are absolutely sluggish. Like when the alarm first goes off, our body knows it's time to wake up. But we mess up that sleep cycle by hitting snooze. 
Now, friends, reason why I share this is because here's the reality and here's the connection. We do this spiritually. I want us to understand this. We do this spiritually. How many times spiritually do we hit the snooze button? As believers, God has made us alive. And another way of saying it, he's awakened our hearts to him. We are no longer in a deep sleep called death and we are alive, awake to him and his grace. And we are called to live a life that resembles that. In fact, the spirit that he has caused to live inside of us as believers wants us to live this way, wants us to not hit the snooze button, but we oftentimes do. Oh, love my neighbor, snooze. Love my enemy, snooze. Be intentional and seek out racial reconciliation and justice, snooze. Stop gossiping, snooze. Oh, forgive others that have wronged me, snooze. Be sexually pure, snooze. Be honest, snooze. Not be greedy, snooze. Seek first You see what I'm saying? We have been awakened. Our hearts and our spirits are alive in him. Instead of living the life that we're exhorted to live, we oftentimes hit snooze because for some reason we're deceived into thinking that, ah, just a little extra sleep, not a big deal. And here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing. It's absolutely destructive when we hit snooze. Like in real life, snoozing is actually detrimental to your day. It does nothing for you. It's the same thing spiritually speaking. Just like me with trying to wake up early, we might even have the best of intentions. We might even make out a game plan. We might even set goals. But in, in, in myself, I cannot do it. I do not, for some reason, have the ability or the self-control to get up when I think I should get up. Same thing spiritually. We don't have it in and of ourselves to live out the life that we are called to live. If you recall, we saw last week in chapter four, verse one, that we are to live a life worthy of the gospel. Like we are to live our lives that are equal weight, but we can't do that in our own effort and our own strength. We have to do it through the Holy Spirit. And that's why I love this letter of Ephesians because a lot of times we confuse these things. The first three chapters of Ephesians is all about worshiping God. It's all about looking at him, the revelation of who God is and his beauty and his great love towards us. And that's why we've been saying that revelation leads to a response and that response is worship. And from a posture of worship, a life of worship comes the behaviors, comes the ethics We don't put the cart in from the horse. Christianity isn't moralism, isn't you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to be good in order to get. No, no, no. It's the complete opposite. You look at him, you experience his love, you see him, you worship him. And from that, our spirits just start to naturally want to and naturally begin to act out that way. But we still have a responsibility. Everything we do as believers is in response to what he has first done. Everything, everything we love, well, why do we love? Because he first loved. We forgive, well, why do we forgive? Because he forgave us. We live a certain way because of who we are in him. We don't behave to get loved. We don't act in a certain way in order to be approved. No, we already are loved. We are already approved because of him. 
It's not moralism. It's not about moralism. It's not about behavioral modifications. You don't have to wrestle it up and try to get in and do it in your own effort and so that that way God could have favor. No, no, it's the opposite. It flows out of a relationship, out of who he is. The gospel changes our hearts. So when we start to look at some of these moral ideals and these like ethical exhortations, we don't just go, oh, now I have to. How am I going to do that? We first look to the gospel. We first look at who he is. And the gospel shows us the beauty and the love of Jesus. And when you see him, and when you experience his love, listen, your spirit inside of you, your heart and your mind starts to want more of him. And then it becomes a choice. How will we respond to Will we get up and move and continue to do what is right or will we hit snooze and delay it? Make no mistake, chapters four, five, and six are moral instruction. They are exhortations in how we are to live as believers, 100%, totally important. But don't put the cart in front of the horse. This is in response to a life of worship. This is a byproduct of a life of worship he reveals we see it so then we respond absolutely important so maybe to use some of the vernacular of our time maybe church we should live woke to the gospel we should be totally awake to the gospel don't hit snooze do not hit snooze so this morning, here's my challenge for us. I'm going to need you to take some notes because this is some heavy stuff. But secondly, I just want you to have open ears and open heart and look at these words. Look at the scripture by first looking at Jesus. Don't look at all the do's and don'ts first. Look at Jesus. See him. See his heart. See what he has done. And then come and look at this passage. So let's start by looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 both start with the word therefore. It's in response to the gospel. Because of Jesus, because we are dead in our sin, it was his grace, it was his mercy that made us alive. It was the gospel that created one new humanity, taking two different groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, tearing down the wall of hostility, great distinctions, things that would just keep us opposed and hostility towards each other. He ripped that all apart and through his body and through his spirit made us one. And through that, through the church, this new society, this new community that he's forming through his Holy Spirit, the wisdom of God, the multicolored, multifaceted wisdom of God is on display for all to see. And when people look at the church, they should be able to see the height, the depth, the width, and the length of the love of Christ. Therefore, here's how we should live because of the gospel. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now... 5 verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God. Here's a truth. This is a, a, a truth across the whole world, right? We are creatures of imitation, and we become like that which we worship. We imitate what we worship. We truly do. 
And this is a linear flow of thought for Paul. It's connected to the gospel, and then it's an exhortation of how to live a life worthy of the gospel. If we were to say, what does a life worthy of the gospel look like? It's right here. It's a life that imitates God, that lives and walks as God would, a way of life that is pleasing to him. So we should be looking to him. We should be observing him. We should be studying him. We should be dialoguing with him. We should be listening to him. And we should be responding like him. But I want you to notice this. And this is absolutely important. It says be imitators as beloved children. It doesn't say be imitators so that you could be a beloved child of God. You already are beloved as a child of God. So therefore, be an imitator. This is not just a throwaway phrase and some kind of like just beautiful poetic thing to say. No, this is gospel truth. We don't imitate God in order to become his children. Amen. We don't imitate God in order to become his children, but because we are his children. He's adopted us. We are beloved and beloved is really a poetic way of saying, you are very much loved. It's out of that reality. It is out of that real and vital experience that causes us to want to imitate God. This is the posture, okay? This is the posture that we need to be in in order to embrace and to understand these ethical and moral imperatives that we're going to read in chapter 5. You don't do in order to be. You already are, so you ought to be. Important. How do we imitate him? Well, what we're going to see in chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, Paul lays out three ways in how we should walk. In other words, the word walk is a Hebraism for saying how we live. And out of that, he's also going to show us the power in how to walk. So the first thing we are to imitate, verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I would be bold enough to say that this right here is sufficient to give us the fuel and the desire to understand and to embrace and do the rest of these verses. Walk in love as Christ loved us us and gave himself up for us jesus his love when we looked at him was a sacrificial love he loved us well how did he love us well not just in in words not just in empty like things he would say but he did it in truth and in action and in deed he gave himself up for us i mean just by the simple fact that he would come from heaven to humble himself he was god he is the creator of everything he was in the glory he was with the father and the holy spirit like he was there and he chose to come here to take on flesh dependent upon his mom to experience what we experience like that's that's humbling himself he didn't come to be served. He didn't come to flaunt that he was God. He came specifically to serve and to give himself up for us so that we could be restored, made alive, awakened to the truth and life. He came 
when we were opposed to him. He loved when we were his enemies. His body, he gave his body over to be ripped apart, to be beaten. He was mocked, betrayed, spat upon. He was whipped, flogged. His blood gushed out for us. He, he, this, this is love. He took on the role of a servant. He washed the disciples' feet to show them the full extent of his love. Walk in love. Now listen, gospel love is and always will be sacrificial love for others. That's what love is. That's gospel love. It's always going to be sacrificial for others. Well, how do we walk in love? Listen, look to Jesus. Look to him. Read about him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Observe him. You can speak with him when you have a relationship with him. Like, look to him. How did he love? We need his example, and we need to see and experience personally his redeeming love. So look to Jesus and see him. As you look to him in the Gospels, you will see him loving those who aren't deemed worthy. Right? The woman calling adultery, so on and forth, so forth. The Zacche Zacchaeus, the tax collector, even his disciples, they weren't worthy right? He, he, he would love those who were deemed unworthy and unacceptable by society and culture. We see him forgiving his enemies, even under the most extreme circumstances. He was even forgiving people when he was on the cross. He constantly gave himself. He always talked about the kingdom and the father. He always wanted the best. He always wanted to see human flourishing. He was always, always patient and he was always gentle. And yet he was even stern. He loved so here's what I want to ask you. When you think about the way that Jesus loves you, what comes to mind? Come, what comes to mind when you think about how Jesus loves you? Does he love you conditionally or unconditionally? Does, is he sacrificial or is he bartering with you? Hey, if you do this, then I will. Is he always forgiving or is he holding grudges? holding things over you, shaming you, guilting you. How does Jesus love you? Were you always friendly to him? How did he love you then? Walk in the way that Jesus loves you. Don't hit the snooze button. If we've been changed by the gospel, friends, listen, we're, we're going to show this by how we live. We don't have an option as followers of Jesus, as beloved children, we don't have an option, really. We should be forgiving other people. Even if they're not worthy of forgiveness, we should forgive them. We should be loving our enemies. We should always be gentle, humble, patience, bearing with one another in love. We should be speaking the truth in love. We should be calling out the darkness, but done it in a way that is loving and pointing to the truth. Absolutely. We should be serving others that are even unlike us, who we even maybe at times think aren't worthy of it. We should be using our time and our resources to bring Jesus to other people. That's how we walk in love. And I love verse, the, the second part of verse two, that it says he gave himself up for us. Okay. Like that's one part of it. But really, there was another side to it. The way he loved us was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So yeah, on one side, he gave himself up for us, but it was really an offering to God. 
That means if we are to love like Jesus, this is so good. If we are to love like Jesus, then when we do this, our love to others, it becomes an offering, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So loving others is like offering a pleasing sacrifice to God. Can I be honest with you for a moment? There are times when there are people in my life that I think, because I'm sinful at times, are not worthy of my love. Now, I wouldn't flat out say that. My actions say that. There are some times where you're just like, man, they're just real punks. And I just don't really want to. Right? Yeah, here, here's a fact. Maybe that person may never recognize how you love them. Maybe you feel like you've tried and tried to love them and they just don't even appreciate or even notice. They take advantage of you. Like, like even people who maybe just flat out wronged you, like, like I don't really want to love them. Listen, listen, this is beautiful because this is gospel. They may never be worthy of your love, okay? We were never worthy of the love of Christ. But guess who's always worthy? Jesus. So you love other people because Jesus is worthy. When we love other people, our love becomes a, a pleasing sacrifice to God. So no matter what, yeah, that person might not be worthy, but when you love him, you are pleasing the Father. You are like doing exactly what he wants. We are imitating him. So we got to understand this, okay? Our acts of love toward others are ultimately for Jesus, even if it feels like you are wasting it on people. Even if other people say, why are you doing that? You go, it's for Jesus. We imitate God by walking in love. But next, what we're going to see is we imitate God as walking as children of light. Now, this is a long section. And Paul talks about three to four specific sin issues that are also idolatry that goes, listen, you don't do these things. They're not proper for a child of God. They're, th the shoe don't fit. Right? Like he goes on, it's like sexual morality in verse 3. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Another way of saying it is it, might, it, it shouldn't even be hinted at. It's not proper among the saints. Sexual morality. Now, parents, listen, if you got kids around, this might be a little PG-13, but it's, it's time the church speaks into this too. Like, like, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Let there not even be a hint of impurity. Let there not even be a hint of covetousness. Like, we really got to answer these questions because I'm telling you, this is not fun. This is a section when you start to read it, you go, oh, I can just kind of move on. That's no different than just hitting the snooze button, right? Sexual morality. I know our brains immediately make these connections like an affair, pornography. But we also know that it's like been redefined a little bit by Jesus that like even if we lust after someone in our hearts, like not the temptation, but start to imagine things like that's wrong. Now, what does a hint even mean? When I remember like being a college pastor and college students asking me this question all the time. Well, how far is far enough, Brandon? <laughs> to which I would always be, if you're asking that question, you're too far, right? It, like that's missing the point. 
sexual morality, impurity, covetousness. Listen, it's all selfish. It's not loving. Gospel love is sacrificial towards other. We are to be supporting and maintaining the unity of the body. This is all selfishness. And all of these sins are sins that come out of the heart. And guess what? That's idolatry. Because what's in the heart is something we worship. So sexual sin is really a worship problem. Impurities, it's really a worship problem. Covetousness, it's really a worship problem. So let me be frank with you. What are you watching? What TV shows are okay? Is it a hint? Are you living with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Would those on the outside have hints as to maybe what you are doing? You, you, you can't hit the snooze button here. The, the shoe doesn't fit. Like this is not proper for us who are children of God. We are beloved. These, as he goes on to say, it's like these are deeds of darkness. This is the fruit of the darkness. We are not darkness anymore, as Paul says in verse um, 7 and 8. We're not darkness, we're light. I mean, this is an identity marker. In verse 8, he goes, for at one time you were darkness. That's important. He didn't say you were walking in darkness. No, no, you were darkness. You were dead. You were in a deep sleep. But now you are light, not you are in the light. No, 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 you are darkness light that's a major identity shift to walk into embrace and still consciously choose willfully without repentance or any remorse sexual sin impurities and covetousness we really got to ask some hard questions here so folks listen don't hit snooze on dealing with sin and idolatry you can't do it it's selfishness. It's not proper. Remember, it's gospel first, then these moral and ethical exhortations. Gospel first. We need to remember his love and what he has done. These acts are destructive. They're death. They're selfish. It's idolatrous, 100%. Anything dealing with sex and all that kind of stuff is meant to be within marriage. Sex is a beautiful thing. The Bible is pro-sex within the confines of marriage with male and female, because God within that construct made two one. And in that oneness, there's this beautiful mystery that is like this complete surrender and self-sacrifice of the other towards the other one. How about the sneaky one of covetousness? I mean, this, this one is real sneaky. Like sexual morality, we can kind of list all those things off and even impurities and, and coarse joking and gossiping and you know, even sexual innuendo joking and all that kind of stuff. Ha 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 ha, that's kind of funny. Like, no, 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 not there. But covetousness, woo, that one's sneaky. The air we breathe is full of consumerism and greed. Greed is covetousness. It's wanting something. It's like, I need this in order to be happy. Until I get this, my life is incomplete like that's the idea of covetousness and that's why paul says it's idolatry you are essentially saying you are essentially saying that whatever it is that you don't have is more important than god do you see why greed is so dangerous like the only thing that we really need to, for contentment is the presence of god is the relationship with Jesus.
But when we give ourselves into greed and covetousness, we are saying, I need something more. I need something more. I got to have it. I got to have it. And that can show up in anything. Finances to a job, to relationships, to, to whatever. The heart is idolatrous. Jesus even said in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, that we are to watch out for greed. It's sneaky. It's subtle. In fact, let me tell you this. I've been pastoring for 17 years. In 17 years, true, I was thinking about this. In 17 years, I never had one person set up a meeting or come to me to confess the sin of greed. Not one. I had people come and confess the sin of sexual morality. I've had all sorts of things, but never one person said, Pastor, I'm so convicted of my greed. No one ever does because it's sneaky. It's dangerous though. It's, it's, it's idolatry. We are not darkness. We are light. We are to live now true to our identity. We are to live out our baptism, as it were. Like He goes on to say some hard things in verse 5. It's like, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. What is Paul saying? That if we stumble with sin, like we're not going to heaven? No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. Listen, we're going to stumble. We're going to hit the snooze button. We're going to. But because of the spirit inside of us, the spirit will convict us. And we should be producing fruit with repentance. We need to get back up and keep moving in the same direction that we have been. But he's speaking of people who are willfully choosing to sin and have no shame, no remorse, are not repentant at all on it. In fact, there are even the people in verse 6 that are going to start to like, you know, deceive you with empty words, saying it's okay. Like the Bible is outdated. That was that maybe that's not really what it means. It's people who start to deceive you or even because they've deceived themselves that, man, this is not really what the scripture says. So they redefine sin and they rename sin and just start to kind of work themselves around it. It's like, no, 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 don't listen to him. Do not be deceived by those people who are darkness, who are walking in that way. Don't do it. But we need to discern what is pleasing. How are we imitating him? So we are to imitate God because we are beloved children. So we walk in love and we walk as children of light. We shouldn't participate with the deeds of darkness. We shouldn't associate with that. Not saying we ignore those people or get away from those people. Like, no, that's not what he's saying. Our mission is to go into darkness. He's just saying don't participate with what they do anymore. That's not how you should be living anymore. It is not consistent with the gospel but rather our lives should be used, the light that's inside of us because we're in Jesus and he's the light of the world, should be used to expose those deeds of darkness, to shine light, to help people understand that those deeds are from death and idolatry and all those things. And as they continue to live that way, their life is going to be in utter ruin. That should be how we live. Take no part, but rather expose it. Not condemning, not judging. That's not our job. But to be salt and light, to speak truth and grace, help them to see Jesus in how we live. If you are participating in the deeds of darkness, 
friends, listen, they're not going to see Jesus. They're just not going to. Don't hit snooze here. Deal with the sin and the idolatry. The spirit that God has caused to be inside of you wants you to live alive, a fully awakened life. Don't do it. Don't grieve him. But not only are we to walk in love and walk as children of light, we are to walk wisely. Verse 15 and 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, what he's saying is, don't just rush through these things. Don't just read this and you're like, oh, I'm good. No, 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 no. Slow down. Look carefully at your life, right? Look carefully. Like, don't, like, words are important. Look carefully. Pay careful attention to you. Pay close attention to you. Give it time and give it care. Let the Holy Spirit search your heart. This is so important. Trouble over this. Don't just gloss over it. Don't just hit snooze and move on. No, look carefully at your life, how you're walking. Is it wise or is it unwise? How are you doing it? Wisdom means that we are learning to think correctly. We are learning how to behave right. We are able then to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, even in the gray areas, in those areas that scripture isn't very explicit on, right? Because there are gray areas. Well, can I do this? I mean, scripture isn't clear. It just kind of says it like, you know, what do I do? What about my job? What about boundaries and relationships? How, you know, all those things, how far is too far, all that kind of stuff. What should we watch? What shouldn't we watch? How do we spend our money? What, how do we spend our time? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Wisdom is where we start to discern between is it beneficial or is it not? Is it pleasing to the Lord or is it not? We have a limited amount of time making the best use of the time. Well, why? Because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time, redeeming the time. Redeem the time. You have a limited amount of time. We all do. How will you live now? What will you choose? Will you live awake to the gospel? Or will you hit snooze over and over and over? Will you live on mission? Will you let your life reflect the light of Christ? Will you pursue unity? Will you pursue this new community where God took two people into one? How we live matters. Now, as I told you, I have a snooze problem. It really became apparent to me when, I, when this happened, when I realized I have a problem. Krissa was pregnant with our second um, child. And um, there was a season in my life where I was feeling unproductive and I was motivated. I was like, I'm going to change things. I'm going to turn over a new leaf and I'm going to live a new way. All this kind of stuff. And I was determined I'm going to become a morning person. And so again, we did the whole thing. I told Chris and she said, really, what's realistic? Are you really going to do it? If you don't get up, listen, I'm going to basically end your life. Like that's kind of a joke, but kind of wasn't. There was a, a strong warning there. I was like, no, no, I got this. I got this. And so um, five o'clock rolled around the next day, totally determined. The alarm went off. I reached over. I hit snooze, but I grabbed the phone. 
And I got up and I walked to 10 feet to the bathroom. And when I got in the bathroom, I don't know what happened, but something from the bed to the bathroom, my brain somehow convinced me to grab a towel, roll up the towel, put it on the ground, and grab another towel and use it as a blanket. And I proceeded to lay down on the floor in the bathroom to snooze. And within a few moments, because my wife was pregnant and because I woke her up, because I was really rude and selfish, all that kind of good stuff, she tried to open up the door to the bathroom. And to her astonishment, she couldn't open up the door more than three inches because my lifeless body was laying there. And she looked at me, she said, you are pathetic. And I went, I am pathetic. I have a problem. And when I realized this, it's like, I made this connection of going, I can't change this on my own. I need, like, I need a miracle for God to somehow make me a morning person. You might read this list of going, okay, I'm supposed to imitate God. I'm supposed to walk in love. That's really hard. I'm supposed to walk as a child of light and deal with the sin and idolatry in my heart. That's really hard. I'm supposed to walk wise, and, and that's really hard. I, I've tried this, and I failed, and I failed, and I failed, and I just feel like it doesn't change. Listen, Paul understands that because what he's going to go on to say now is like, listen, yes, you are to walk this way, but you can't do this on your own. You need a power to do it within you, and that power is the Holy Spirit. And that's why he goes on to say here in verse 18, he goes, listen, okay, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, okay, he's making a contrast. He's, he's technically not calling out the sin of drunkenness, even though he is. But the whole idea of it is going, you live under the influence of either sin and idols, or you're going to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying is, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the language that he's using is very, very encouraging. Okay? Because listen, we have to understand this theologically. When we said yes and received a gift of life, he caused his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. That's what it means to be born again. To be a new creation. But we have this responsibility on our end to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit, right? That's our job. And so the question is, how do we do that? And what does that look like? We need the Holy Spirit. Paul in chapters one, two, three, four, and five, and six, will say this over and over and over and over and over. The Holy Spirit, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, meaning that's where your security is. You need the Holy Spirit to be made alive. You need the Holy Spirit to form the church. You need the Holy Spirit to even show you how much Jesus loves you. You need the Holy Spirit to maintain the unity and the bond of peace. You need the Holy Spirit to be able to imitate God as a beloved child. That's important to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is written in an imperative mood, which means it's a command. It's not an option. It's something we have to do. It's plural. It's not just for one person. It's not just for the pastoral elite. It's for every believer. Every single person who received the gift of life It is your obligation to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's passive, which also means that there's no special technique no special incantation, no formula to recite. It's basically a life of repentance and worship. 
It's repentance and worship where we allow the word of God to dwell in us richly, where we learn to hear his voice and understand how he works. Word and spirit where we get the motivation and the desire to obey and surrender. And it's written in the present tense, which means it's, it's a daily, hourly, moment-by-moment moment thing. Two commands and five participles that we see. Do not get drunk. Do not be underneath the influence of that that controls how you live, how you think, how you feel. But be filled with the Spirit. Be underneath the influence of the Holy Spirit. And they've got five participles of actions that describe what this looks like. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does a life filled with the Holy Spirit look like? It looks like that. You are addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Your language is one of worship. Psalms really represent all of the seasons of life, from the joys down to the sorrows. You're speaking truth and grace into those lives. The hymns is this rich theology matched with melody in the hearts that allows the gospel to penetrate the hearts. And the spiritual songs is an overflow of emotion in our hearts that just, just comes naturally. Like when you're on a, a date with your spouse and you just look at him, you're like, I just love you. We address one another with that. We give, uh, we, we sing. We sing. Listen, I, I know, especially guys. Guys, listen. That was a wake up. Guys, listen. The singing portion in the church isn't a wasted moment. You, 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 like, I know it's a challenge right now at home to engage in worship, but it's not a wasted moment. Singing, singing is so important. Singing is like um, um, take-home theology. Singing actually gets gospel truths into our heart far better than a sermon does. Just saying. It's the truth. You probably remember maybe one word I said this whole sermon. Snooze. Probably. I'm just kidding. But sometimes the last song will sit in your mind over and over and over Singing allows us to express things that words don't allow us to express. It's not a throwaway. It's worship. It's being captivated by the love of Christ. And it's worship that fuels us to want to live a certain way. And we worship as a response to what God has shown us. Singing, is, it's been part of the people of God from day one. Don't treat worship, the singing portion, as a throwaway to the sermon, as if the sermon is far greater than, than the singing. no. It's just a different avenue. It's a different vehicle of getting to know Jesus. And we make songs in our heart, right? That's, that's the song that sticks with you and it's inside of you. And it is a continuous thing. Like all week, the song that's been in my head is, is the hymn, Your Mercy is More. It's just been in my head over and over. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. It's like, it's just been in my mind making melody in my heart and moments of thanksgiving and praise just just bubbles up being filled with the spirit we're addressing one another right with worship we're singing to one another and singing to god we're making songs in our own heart because we're walking with this we're being filled with the spirit but also giving thanks if you're going to see the gospel right you you literally have no room to grumble 
You literally have no room to complain. In fact, I dare you to find one spirit-filled person. You know, you go, wow, they really got it. I guarantee you, you won't hear them complain. You won't hear them grumble. You won't hear them be critical. You will hear them always being grateful and thankful because that's the language of worship. But last and certainly not least, and we're going to dive into this head first next week, submitting to one another. To be filled with the Spirit is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why would I submit? Because I revere Jesus. I want to imitate Him. I want people to see Him. And what we're going to see next week is that He gives us three specific relationship environments where submitting to Christ, out of, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ takes place. This is why we're calling this series Awake, O Sleeper. Verse 14, Be awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Don't hit snooze. Be filled with the Spirit. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Look to Him. Be thankful for Him. Talk about Him. Sing about Him. These are things that allow us to be filled with the Spirit. And when that happens, I'm telling you, we begin to naturally want to imitate God. Don't put the cart in front of the horse. Don't get discouraged and just keep hitting snooze. But be filled with the Spirit. Choose to get near Him. So live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your word. And I just pray that through all of the words, that your spirit would take one thing and just drive that point home into our hearts. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't allow us to take this and somehow separate it as different than from the gospel. I pray that we would understand that this is what life begins to look like as we are worshiping and in love with you. Not because we have to or that it's a killjoy, but because we want to. And we understand what light is and fruit is and joy is. So Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would listen to these words and that we wouldn't hit snooze and that we would, especially in a time like this, we would walk in love. We would walk in light as distinct people of God and that we would walk wisely understanding that, that the time is short, the time, the days are evil and we are here on mission. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us and that you would teach us what it means to be filled with the Spirit, but also that we would be a people who understand the power and the beauty of worshiping, of singing to you and what that actually does in our hearts and in our lives. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would walk alongside of us today, that we would be mindful and be filled with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings, church.